This episode of Spawn is brought to you by Circle, the newest picture book from New York Times bestselling duo Mac Barnett and John Klassen, published by Candlewick Press. Circle continues the story of three very sneaky shapes, triangle, square, and circle. It's about a rule that Circle makes and how she has to rescue Triangle when he breaks that rule. To learn more, visit Candlewick.com and use code Candlewick for 25% off Circle and the first two books in the trilogy. That's Candlewick.com. Use the code Candlewick for 25% off. Hello and welcome to Spawn, a common sense and hopefully fun discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Kristen Chase and I'm one of the co-founders of Cool Mom Picks. Unfortunately, Liz isn't with us tonight. She'll be back next week, but that's okay because we have a fabulous guest. And tonight we're going to be chatting with best-selling author Andy Buchanan about her memoir, The Beginning of Everything, which recounts her diagnosis and treatment and recovery and aftermath of something called a spontaneous spinal CSF leak. And we'll be learning more about this on this episode. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. But first, let me tell you a little more about Andy, who I know personally from many moons ago. She lives in Philadelphia with her family. Of course, I live in the suburbs of Philly, so kind of close by. But you might know her as one of the authors of the internationally best-selling The Daring Book for Girls. But she also wrote, oh my gosh, she's prolific. She's got a multimedia young adult novel named Gift, a collection of essays on early motherhood called Mother Shock, Loving Every Other Minute of It. And her latest book, which we're going to be talking about tonight, was a finalist for the 2019 Penn E.O. Wilson Award for Literary Science Writing. And fun fact about Andy that I knew about, but not too many people know, is that she is trained as a pianist. And she went to the Boston Conservatory of Music and the San Francisco Conservatory. So as a former professional-ish musician, Andy, I'm very glad to have you here. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank I you. I always forget about that fact, but I think we were at North Bowl or something. Do you remember that at one point oh, in time? Oh, my gosh. Was- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ages ago. And I feel like that was the first time that I heard that fact about you. And, you know, your last concert was at Carnegie Hall. So, you know, just a tiny little venue, <laughs> nothing major. Yeah, you know. <laughs> okay. So I know that I am not the first person that you've spoken to who has never heard of a spontaneous spinal CSF leak. And I'm wondering, had you even heard about this when you were first diagnosed? You know, what was your reaction when you found out that this was what was going on with you? Yeah, I had not heard of this before. I had heard about people having epidural headaches after getting like an epidural in childbirth. You know, they kind of warn you about that and say you you could get a headache after this. I don't remember somebody telling me like the reason you could get a headache, what they sometimes call a spinal headache, is because the anesthesiologist pokes the needle in too far and then your cerebrospinal fluid leaks out, your dura. But I do remember being told about that as a risk when I was having my kids. But other than that, I had never heard of this. Um, From my perspective, you know, I had this terrible, terrible headache and I didn't know what was going on. I feared, you know, it could be a brain tumor or something, you know, equally terrifying. And so when one of the doctors I saw said, this could be a CSF leak, I was like, what? 
you know, I, I didn't know anything about it. Wow. And so that was the first time you've heard of it. And I imagine that there might have been curiosity, maybe a little relief to kind of hear well, that it has a name. And you talk about the one bad cough. And so, of course, the, the, <laughs> the anxious person in me is like, was it really just one bad cough? Or was it like a series of issues? Like, how did this happen? Yeah, it's very tempting when I tell the story now that I'm feeling better when I talk about like, I coughed really hard and then this happened to, <laughs> you know, but it's that, <laughs> oh, man. I actually live in fear of coughing again like that, but um, it really did happen that way. I had a flu, you know, just a really like 103 fever and, you know, all the aches and malaise of a flu and uh, one weekend. And I wasn't totally better when I left the house to go to brunch with a friend. And I, you know, I think we've all had that experience of like walking outside on a, like a bitter winter, windy day and kind of choking on the air a little bit. Yes. And I just had like this coughing fit in the middle of the street. And at the time, I didn't think much more of it than that I would be really embarrassed if I threw up in the middle of the street. Like that was really my only goal was to like get across the street before I threw up <laughs> and then get to the restaurant and drink some water because it was the worst coughing fit I've ever had. But that was it. I didn't connect it to the headache that eventually seeped in about a week later until a doctor was asking me, you know, did anything precipitate this? Did you have any trauma? Did you have an accident? Did you have, mm, say, a coughing fit? You know, and so I, I didn't connect the dots to that until later. Part of what I'm exploring in the book is trying to figure out, was it really just that cough? Was the other series of events, can, how far can I trace this back to kind of find that inciting incident that really set off this chain reaction that ended up with my brain fluid leaking out of my head. Um, but yeah, I, I, that, the cough was seemingly where it started. That's fascinating. I mean, I think that we've all had coughing fits like that. I mean, I actually just a few months ago, it wasn't a flu, but it was a bad cold. And I was um, working in an office and they're like, um, I think you should go home. <laughs> like everyone is worried that they're going to get what you have because I would breathe in. And I think it was also just because of the air and it was so dry in the office and I couldn't stop coughing. So I, I think we can all relate. But then, like you said, who necessarily would connect a headache, a really bad headache, like really bad, right? Like we're talking like nonstop migraine level. Like I don't even know what kind of headache you're actually yeah. talking about. I'm just imagining. I should back up and say that for many people, especially with spontaneous spinal CSF leaks, a headache isn't always their worst symptom. Sometimes people have other symptoms that are more prominent. But for most people, a sudden onset headache that doesn't seem to go away except when they lay down mm. is the hallmark of a spinal CSF leak. There is such a thing as a cranial CSF leak where the tear in the dura that causes your cerebrospinal fluid to leak out is actually located in your head rather than somewhere along your spine. But the symptoms for that are different. Um, and your headache often feels worse when you lay down in that situation. But yes, my headache was intractable. It was constant. It was unceasing. It kind of came on a little slowly and it settled kind of in the back of my skull. It felt like a softball sized area in the right side of my back of my head. And if I was awake and standing up or sitting up, my whole world was just pain. I started to notice that it felt better if I laid down. And then once I laid down, if I stood up, I had, you know, five or 10 minutes before it would start feeling worse again. 
And once I communicated that to a doctor, you know, that kind of pointed them in the direction of, oh, maybe this is a CSF leak. Because of course, like many people who have this happen, I was first diagnosed with, you know, migraine, or they thought maybe it was a sinus infection. You know, head pain is really hard to diagnose and, and understand, and it can be caused by lots of different things. So it took a while. And even the doctors who first suggested perhaps this was a CSF leak, they were not experts in this. And there were no resources, even here in Philadelphia with these world-class hospitals, there were no specialists here who knew how to treat or fix it. Well, that's frustrating. Yeah, it was a long road between that cough and my eventual, you know, repair of the the problem. Well, you talk a lot about having to fight to be seen as a reliable narrator. And I think this is a common theme, especially recently. um, And I'm not sure if you had followed the story, but I know Selma Blair, who had just gone public with her MS diagnosis, was on Good Morning America. And she spoke about a similar situation where, you know, I don't know the specifics of yours, but I know she had mentioned that, you know, everyone's like, you're just tired. You're a single mom. You're exhausted. Like, go get some rest. So I'm curious, what made you so persistent? I mean, was it purely just because you couldn't function? Were there other things that made you think about exactly what happened and continue to be persistent about it until you got an answer? Like, what was it that worked for you in the end? I mean, I could not live like that. I was really desperate by the time I was able to get to a place that could fix me. But being seen as an unreliable narrator is a serious problem that mostly affects women. I mean, I I write in the book that, you know, doctors were asking me, you know, have you tried vitamin? D? Have you tried a migraine medication? Have you tried this? Have you tried that? And really what they're asking me is, have you tried not being a 43-year-old woman in the midst of a divorce? You know, yeah. like everything was kind of ascribed to like, well, you're a busy person. You're stressful. You have a headache. Who hasn't had a headache? What's the big deal? You know, and it was very confusing because I couldn't really advocate for myself. I was so cognitively impaired. I couldn't remember my kids' birthdays. I couldn't follow simple directions. I couldn't read. I couldn't write. I couldn't watch. TV. Like I literally, my brain was not functioning. It was, I've never been super, super drunk, but it was like being super, super drunk. You know, my body could walk to places, but my mind wasn't telling it where to go. You know what I mean? It was a very curious thing. And it was especially difficult to be so impaired and at the same time have to advocate for myself. And like you said, be persistent about it. I also, you know, this was unfamiliar territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time that I was sick with this, there wasn't a lot of conversation online or public conversation amongst patients or medical professionals about this. And the the few things that I found when I was alert enough to do a Google search were horrifying. Yeah, as usual, right? We all say. Worst case. Yeah. yeah. But the problem is that, yes, Dr. Google is not a place to go because very often they will scare you rather than help you. But there are instances where you can find resources because there's nothing around you. Like you said, we're, I mean, and we're in Philadelphia, like University of Pennsylvania, and there was nothing. So like, what else are you to do then? How else are you supposed to get answers? And, you know, you're supposedly talking to experts, right? You're talking to doctors. They're the ones who know stuff, right? And my brain doesn't work. So when they're telling me like, well, we don't know. It's your call. You, I guess you could have through the face brain surgery, but we don't really know. If oh that's my God. <laughs> you know, I'm not in a position to evaluate what I can eat for dinner, let alone whether or not I should have 
through the face surgery. Through the um, face surgery just doesn't even sound like a thing. Like they be- should come up with a better name for it. Let's put it that way. You know, I'm sure they had a more doctorly term for it, <laughs> but that's essentially what it was. And the doctor told me like, you know, it's up to you. <sighs> I, I will say that if I do this, you know, uh, you might not have had a hole in your head before I start, but you will by the time I'm finished. I, so- I just can't, you know, it's, it's interesting you say this, Andy, because I have a friend of mine who went through a situation with her kidneys and it's unbelievable the way that she was treated and the way that she was spoken to, the way that the information was given to her. I mean, her situation was a mess and different in that, you know, I think some of their behavior was very questionable and there were huge issues there. But I think the underlying theme that you have in common here is that people don't think you know what you're talking about. People don't think that you understand your symptoms. And I think there's this whole idea of gender, like you're just freaking out. Yeah. You can't handle it. Every You got so much going on, you know, like go get a manicure and a massage. You know, right. it's like right. that whole yeah. attitude. It's very dismissive and it's so hard to deal with because, you know, whether or not you are a reliable narrator from a medical perspective, like you obviously, you know, I haven't gone to medical school, although I was married to a doctor. So, you know, uh, I guess secondhand medical studying may have rubbed off on me a little bit. But, um, you know, I haven't had the kind of training these people have had. And yet, I am first person reporting from inside my own body. And you would think that especially for doctors who are primarily diagnosticians, they would be very interested in seeing that body of information. You know, I have information to offer them that they don't have any other way of accessing. And it's frustrating, too, to report that even after having gone through this and being on the other side, I still know a lot more about this than most neurologists because it's a very rare thing and only a few people specialize in. But that issue of not being taken seriously because you're a woman is just, I remember it being bad when I was a young woman, but it seems to get even more difficult when you're older. I actually wrote a satirical piece about that for McSweeney's last summer, and I called it Diagnosis Female, because really, (laughs) that seems like when you go into the doctor and you're presenting with symptoms as a woman, the diagnosis is, oh, you're a woman. You're a woman. I read that piece. We'll link that up, by the way, in our podcast notes, because it was so good and so true. And, you know, I'm glad folks like Selma Blair, who have a huge platform are bringing attention to it. I mean, you're bringing attention to it with your award-winning or finalists, whatever the the proper terminology is. You're an award winner in our eyes. Um, (laughs) You know, like you're bringing attention to that because there are so many women that are seeking help for real things that are happening. And look, sometimes it is anxiety, right? Like sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. And we need the compassion and empathy for us if it is anxiety. But then we need people to rule that out and be like, okay, this is a real thing that's happening to you. Now, okay, so you had a lot going on in your life. I mean, you actually really did have a lot going on. (laughs) You you were in the middle of a divorce and, you know, you're trying to navigate that whole process as someone who's been divorced. Totally understand that. So I'm wondering, what was the impact of your diagnosis on all of that? Like, did it change anything? Like, did it bring you all together? Did it pour fuel on the fire? I'm curious to know how it affected the already stressful situations in your life. Yeah, it was um, a difficult time, to put it lightly. Mm -hmm. In a lot of ways, as you know, 
foggy-headed as I was during that time, it clarified things for me. Because, of course, you know, I had been married for 20 years, and thinking about divorce was a huge leap just to even, you know, contemplate, let alone actually go through. You know, it, I, I hadn't been undertaking that lightly, and it had been a long time in coming, and we'd been in discussions about this for a while before I got sick. Um, I, I kept going back and forth between thinking like, well, maybe I'm making a mistake to do this. Why should I disrupt my family just because I happen to be unhappy? Like how selfish is that? I can't do that. You know? And then I go back to thinking like, no, absolutely. I need to do this because I need to model for my kids, like what a healthy relationship looks like and what a healthy breakup can look like. You know, that's important too. Right. So I kept going back and forth and I wasn't sure if I was making the right call. And then I got sick. Um, and this was, you know, sudden. And I was severely incapacitated. And um, my husband at the time was already like halfway out of the house. Right. And I had, you know, a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old. And um, I, I don't want to say it was a test, but it, it gave me some clarity about the fact that I was making the right call because, you know, I needed him to step up and he wasn't able to in a, in a way that could have really helped me at the time. I just saw that this was the right call. You know, he did what he could and he did as much as he could, but I... I could see like, right, this was the right thing to do. And we're going to just continue on this path towards separation. And it's going to be okay. So even know? though you had fogginess, you actually had some clarity <laughs> in some, yeah. some parts yeah, of your it, life, oddly enough. <laughs> yeah, every once in a while, I had a couple of um, procedures where they would inject blood into the epidural area. And that would kind of push my brain fluid up and make my brain float a little bit again. Um, and, and, you know, in those moments, I was able to have some clarity and uh, terror about what was happening a little bit. You know, I had a, a week or two here and there where I felt like me again. I felt like I could think. And uh, I tried to get all my thinking done <laughs> in those times. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's an interesting concept or thought, if you will, like you had to kind of save all your thinking <laughs> for a certain period of time. I mean, well, you, you just mentioned some treatment, I guess. And I'm curious to know, because it's such an unfamiliar diagnosis, I would love to just hear more about the types of procedures, unless they involve through the face surgery, maybe not. But maybe <laughs> to give a warning to our listeners, yeah. be prepared. No. So tell me about the procedures, whether it's over now, like, is this something that is ongoing? I, I want to hear, I'm very curious. Well, I'm really lucky um, that for now, I am healed from this. At least I don't have an ongoing leak currently. So my case is not like everyone's case. Sometimes people get treated and it's something where they have to get retreated a couple times a year and it becomes a chronic thing that they live with. I was very lucky. But um, generally, the way this goes is, you know, doctors recommend conservative stuff first. So I was told to just go on bed rest, lie down for 48 hours and don't get up except to use the bathroom, um, to drink caffeine and eat salty foods, which, you know, most doctors would tell you not to do, but drinking caffeine and salty foods kind of raises your blood pressure, expands your blood vessels. They thought it would make me feel better because I'd have a little bit more buoyancy because what happens when your brain fluid leaks out is that your brain sinks in your skull and it compresses all those nerves at the base of your skull, which are pretty important nerves. Oh, <laughs> and yes. um, yeah, so you need, you need some buoyancy. So laying down gives you that because you're not affected by gravity the way you are when you stand up. And then the caffeine and salt kind of helps increase that. But those are pretty temporary measures and um, they obviously don't fix the problem. Uh, but sometimes there is a chance that your body can repair the hole or the tear or whatever it is that's 
cause the liquid to seep out. So they recommend that first. The next thing that they recommend is usually an epidural blood patch, which is very similar to the kind of epidural um, anesthesia you might be offered in childbirth, except what they're injecting into your back is blood that they take out of your arm at about the same time and they inject it into your back. Wow. Um, yeah. And the hope is that the blood will clot there. And generally, unless your tear or the hole that's where the leak is, is in that specific area, that will only provide very temporary relief because it doesn't actually close up the hole or the tear. It's like pinching the end of a balloon. You know, maybe it keeps the air in, but not totally. Eventually, I had several of those to varying degrees of, uh, you know, awfulness and success. Um, Yeah, my gosh. But then eventually I went to, you know, the headache specialist I was seeing and I said, "I, I can't live like this. This is not helping. I can't just go on being treated uh, with these procedures that are like these stopgap measures that do nothing. I, I can't function. I can't, I can't do this. And she said, well, you know, it's interesting because I just went to hear a talk by some doctors from Duke University and they were talking about how they treat spinal CSF leaks. And I thought, oh, that sounds like my patient and you should go there. You know, it took like six months for this conversation to happen. And I'd been leaking for like nine months total by the time I finally got Ugh. this recommendation. But that is where I went. And there they do very specific tests to try to find the source of the leak. It's notoriously difficult to find it on imaging, but even if they don't see it, they know how to treat it. It's a team of neuroradiologists and they do a blood patch procedure that's similar to the one that I described, except they do it under CT scanning and they can inject the blood all the way up like I had it injected in four places at the top of my spine, in between my shoulder blades, uh, my lower back, and then at the base of my spine. And what they do, they can see the blood spread because they're watching it on a CT scanner. They can see it like in real time. And they're trying to get the blood to coat the entire spine and coat the dura mater, that tough covering, that membrane that holds your cerebrospinal fluid in place like a Band-Aid. Wow. So it does a couple (laughs) of things. It acts like a Band-Aid to apply pressure to the area and seal it up. And it also provokes an autoimmune response in the body so that your body's going to kind of attack that area and start to mend you know, you, your back feels like a lead pipe for a while. and But it worked for you. Yeah. For me, it worked and it took one time. And that is unusual. And I'm very grateful. That's yeah. unbelievable. I, I can imagine. I mean, I have had migraines and I've had repeated migraines over, you know, like a series for like PMS. And when I was pregnant with my third daughter, I know people suffer from migraines. And I know this isn't a migraine, but like I am an angry, awful person. <laughs> like I just, when I have them, I just can't imagine living like that for so long. And I mean, you're like super competent. I mean, you've written so many books. You're a pianist. It must have been stifling. And I'm wondering, just from a parenting perspective, like how how did it affect you with your kids and your parenting life? I mean, did you need to rely on your ex for like heavy co-parenting where, you know, your kids are a little older? So was it easier? I'm just curious because I'm sure there are listeners going, oh, my God, how did she parent her kids during this time? Yeah, I mean, I talked to lots of patients who had this when they had you know toddlers, and I frankly don't know how they did it. At least my kids were a little bit, yeah. little bit more autonomous and a little bit like buffered by some like natural teenage, you know, self-centeredness. So they were kind of self-protected a little bit by the developmental stage they were in. But it was difficult. I had wanted to be in a certain frame of mind to be able to absorb their emotion and anger and grief and 
sadness about uh, the divorce. I had wanted to be able to be there for them in a way that I wasn't able to be. And I worried a lot about that um, because I, I just didn't have the mental capacity to be present the way I always have been. And it was kind of a shock to them because I guess moms always get a little bit taken for granted. But to go from, you know, a thousand miles per hour to zero was pretty revelatory. You know, suddenly I wasn't doing Mm -hmm. all the things and I wasn't able to do all the things and they had to do things that they never thought they needed to do. And even the logistical stuff was tricky, but I I didn't worry so much about that as I worried about the emotional stuff. I write in the book about how I did a lot of parenting while laying down, you know, I would lay down next to them while they did their homework (laughs) or while they watched TV or played video games. Like even if I couldn't really participate, I could be physically there a little bit. And yeah, it was difficult, you know, Um, it's gratifying to see them on the other side now where they're happy and well-adjusted and this scary time is behind us, but it was a scary time for everybody. I at first didn't tell them how bad it was for me because A, I didn't know how bad it it was um, and I didn't want to frighten them, but by downplaying it at the beginning, I think I... I, um, maybe did them a disservice because they didn't really understand why I was so absent. I think like, it was just like, Oh, moms, you know, headaches, uh, who cares, you know, but you know, it's a hard line to walk because I didn't want to be like, Oh, this terrifying thing is happening. And I don't know if I'll ever be better. Bye. You know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You know, and, and there's no precedent really for anything like this. There are of course families that deal with severe illnesses every single day, but the fact that you were there and you're present and you could function laying down, you know, but then you would get up and couldn't, there are probably people, people who can imagine right now how it would be. You know, it's, I I find right now, like I'm thinking, this is so humbling. Like I'm thinking my kids are so used to me going at a hundred miles an hour. Like you said, a thousand miles an hour. What would happen? You know, what would happen if I couldn't do that? And maybe it's a call for me to be like, okay, kids, you got to step it up in the back of my mind. It's like, I'm not going to be like, because I could be incapacitated like Andy Buchanan. (laughs) (laughs) There is something to be said, like this happened at a time for them developmentally where they were supposed to be separating from me a little bit, you know, pulling away into their own teenage identities. We were going through these huge identity shifts at the same time, me into this like weird dissociative, like I am not there. You know, there's this difference between my brain and my mind and I'm like absent from myself. I'm like a ghost in my own body. And they going through this transition into like young teenagehood and and, like mid teenagehood, um, which is its own identity shift and identity crisis. And so, yeah, they had to, they had to grow up a little bit. And yet they were supposed to be growing up a little bit. It's a shame that this kind of hastened that in some ways. But that was something I wrestled with the whole time when I was able to wrestle, you know? Yeah, when you were able to wrestle, right? Yeah. You know, we've heard from so many people who have endured challenges like this, that in some ways, or in many ways, it gives them a new way of looking at their life. And, you know, you just talked about how, you know, it gave some insight for your kids, for one, whether that was for the better or for the worse. Sounds like it was really for the better. But I'm wondering if it was true for you. You know, how has your attitude changed? How has your approach to life changed? Or has it? Oh, yeah. Since this happened? You know, I I got the leak repaired in January of 2016. And that year was my year zero, you know, starting over. Mm -hmm. January 2017 was my year one. Uh, That was the year that I wrote the book. January 2018 was started of year two, which is when the book came out. And I guess we're almost a a couple months into year three. Um, 
when I was going through this and, and the, the possibility of being healed again it was actually, you know, a possibility. My question was, you know, how long do I get back to baseline? And the doctor that I saw was like, well, you know, baseline is a relative term. Like, you can't think about baseline. You can't go back to the way you were before. You have to move forward from where you are now. And that was a hard thing to do, to the, the, the comparison between like, oh, I used to be able to do all this stuff and now I can't. But at the same time, like, I remember the first time I was able to take my kids to the movies after I was fixed and a few months had gone by and I was able to tolerate sitting. Like, I went to the movies and I sat for two hours. Like, I couldn't do that before. Yeah. I remember yeah. being able to like walk to the store and remember why I was there and what I was supposed to get like these small victories like even just being able to remember like you know you get a text that gives you a pin and then you have to enter it on the website or something just being able to remember the pin from like the moment I see it on my phone to the moment I enter it into the street like those little wow. things were like huge. And I learned a lot in recovery about narrowing my my world down to really achievable goals. Like actually, even in writing mm -hmm. this book, that first year probably took me to about 80% of, again, I don't want to use the word baseline, but kind of 80% of the way back yeah. to decent brain, you know? And so writing the book, I was still healing and it took like that next year to get that last 15, 20%, I would say. And the process of writing the book was really hard. I mean, I'm a fast writer usually. I'm never late with a deadline and things usually go pretty easily. And this book fought me every step of the way because, you know, I was wrestling with executive function issues that I'd never had before. And, you know, I was really kind of fighting my way back. So I couldn't work on this book the way I used to work on other books. I mean, I, I used to be able to know that I could write a thousand to three thousand words a day if I wanted to. And this was not a thing that I could depend on. Yeah. Do. Well, yeah. So my goal, instead of being a word count, or a chapter deadline. My goal was literally something a friend of mine called no zero, which meant all I had to do was more than zero. And whether that meant thinking about writing something or writing 10 words or writing a thousand words, it all counted. So I had to really scale things back. Um, that was a good lesson. You know, I write in the book about practicing piano and how this whole process reminded me of when I first went to the conservatory and my teacher assigned me this piece, this Chopin etude, and wanted me to practice one note for my lesson. <laughs> one note. She didn't want me to play the rest of it, just the first note in the right hand, not even with the left hand, just one note. And that was it. And I was so stymied and I didn't understand and I was like ashamed and embarrassed like it was a punishment. And I, I didn't really get it until later that she was trying to teach me a whole new way of understanding myself and music and the physicality of what I was doing and my approach to the instrument that it wasn't a punishment at all. It was really uh, like a way to be able to eventually set myself free. And my recovery was very much like that, very slow, very painstaking, needing a lot of concentration and sometimes frustrating because, you know, I was used to doing things in big gulps and not one teeny, teeny, tiny sip at a time. Well, certainly a wonderful lesson for parents as well and something that we can all take from that. You know, this idea of zero, that sometimes just getting up out of bed yeah. is a win. You know, if you've got babies, it's just that you made it through your day, you know, like one hour, say one day at a time, try right. one hour at a time. And I think so many of us feel like we haven't accomplished anything, especially in society today. You know, I think about myself and like these to-do lists and all the things that I'm running around doing. And sometimes it's just the small things. Those are enough. 
enough. Like those are enough. Yeah. I mean, I think it's easy to get lost in the must achieve and you got to have your kids and all the activities and (laughs) they can't ever have any downtime. And, you know, my younger kid um, this week, you know, wanted a mental health day because, you know, there'd been a lot of stress at school and my ex was like, no way, no mental health days. But I was like, you know, I mean, their grades are great. They're doing fantastic. I don't think there's any problem at all with just taking a day off sometimes. Like we all need it. It's not like they're not going to get into college because they took one day off. The stuff will be there tomorrow. You know, I, I think about that. Stuff on our list will be there tomorrow. You know, what really matters for many of us, we're learning from you because we hope that we don't have to go through something so challenging to learn that lesson. But I mean, I know that I'm appreciative of hearing that from you. Like you sharing this means a lot and will help a lot of people. I mean, your journey, not just for the diagnosis itself, like you said, there's not a lot of information. So you writing about it is going to help people who are suffering with the same symptoms and might have this. But I think also just this notion of surviving and going from a hundred to zero and what that does to someone and then how you build back is very inspiring. So I'm inspired. (laughs) And um, I know whoever is going to read this will be as well. So your book is called The Beginning of Everything. It's available anywhere where you buy books, ask for it at your local bookstore, ask for it at your library, and folks can find you at AndyBuchanan.com. You're on Twitter, Andy Buchanan, and Facebook, Andrea J. Buchanan. Very formal on Facebook. (laughs) Well, you know, there is another author named Andrea Buchanan. We we offer and get each other's emails. So the J is there to disambiguate. To differentiate. (laughs) That's awesome. And of course, we will link everything up that we spoke about, Andy's book and all that good stuff over on Cool Mom Picks. Now you're going to stick around for their Cool Picks of the Week, right, Andy? Absolutely. Okay. So we will get back with those right after this. I'm so thrilled to welcome our newest sponsor. It's the book Circle, which is the newest picture book from New York Times bestselling duo Mac Barnett and John Klassen, published by Candlewick Press. Now, Triangle is a very popular book around my house. In fact, my eight-year-old still loves it. And when she saw this book in the house, it was sent to me and I had opened it up and popped it up on our bookshelf. She ran in the house And instead of running for her tablet or running for the television, she ran directly to me and said, Mom, there's a new book that I have to read you. It's called Circle. And it was hilarious because she was already excited about it and I hadn't even cracked it open. So that tells you a lot about how popular this trilogy is. Now, with their usual pitch-perfect pacing and subtle, sharp wit, the authors Mac Barnett and John Klassen, who, by the way, this is the same team who brought you Sam and Dave Dig a Hole, they come full circle... Yeah, you got to love a little pun in this third and final chapter of their Clever Shapes trilogy. If you're not familiar, it's pretty simple. Look for the books Triangle, Square, and now Circle. And this story is all about a rule that Circle makes and how she has to rescue Triangle when he breaks that rule. It's a super fun book. Your young readers will read it without a problem. Your older readers will get a kick out of it. And you know what? you can save 25% off 
Circle, as well as the first two books in the trilogy, that's Triangle and Square. If you go to Candlewick.com, make sure you use the code Candlewick and you'll get 25% off. That's Candlewick.com. Use the code Candlewick for 25% off. There are lots of birthdays and holidays and just, you know what, any day where we love reading a book that you can grab this trilogy and make a little person in your life very happy. Okay, Andy, it's time for... Cool Picks of the Week! Cool Picks of the Week! And you get to go first. You're our guest. Okay, I actually have two, and I can't pick which one, so I'm going to just say both. Is that okay? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay, because I have to preach the gospel of skin food. Have you heard of skin food? I, okay, I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it, and I'm very curious. Okay, it sounds like very. it sounds like something a serial killer would recommend, but it is <laughs> actually this incredible moisturizer by Waleda. Oh, yes. It's called Skin Food. Yes. And, oh, I, I just heard that Rihanna uses it. So um, it's totally on trend right now. Yes, it's um, very I, legit. It's legit, <laughs> yeah. I've been using it for years and it is like a very thick paste. So you might be scared about it, but like it is amazing. I mean, I'm about to turn 48 and I always get mistaken for somebody in their 30s. So I just have that to say. That is a good selling point. Yeah. <laughs> it has some, uh, some key properties in it. I don't know what is in it, but um, it is food for your skin. And I have been evangelizing this in my own personal life. And there are many people now in the cult of skin food. that. So I got to recommend that. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to check that out because, you know, I I don't know if you know Sarah James, but she used to write the well, she still writes it. This the website Whorl, W H O O R L. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. right. So she does a lot of this natural beauty products. And so I was just looking at her story today, and she was talking about how whatever her skin regimen was, she didn't need to wear foundation. And I don't really wear foundation. I'll wear like a BB cream, uh-huh. but I have to say, <laughs> I was very fascinated. So I'm very fascinated by this because I feel like I go in waves yeah. where I like do a ton of stuff for my skin. And then I'm like, "Mm, I forgot to wash it. (laughs) I have very dry skin. I'm the kind of redhead that gets sunburned indoors. So I have to be very vigilant about my moisturizing and SPF using at all times. So yeah, I highly recommend this. Awesome. Okay, what's your next one? Oh, and the other thing is just, I just think this is really fun. And I've started doing it. uh, And it's knitting. I started knitting. A friend of mine, yeah, a friend of mine was really into it. And she would always have a knitting project when she when she she come to visit and then she took me to a yarn store one day and I was like all right I need everything in here it was so beautiful and so she got me started and I've made like 12 things now okay first of all to say that you just started knitting because if I'm remembering correctly I feel like you've made like beautiful shawls I, am I wrong I made like a lace shawl recently that was like my, the third didn't you lose it or something I, yeah I or lost, somewhere? the first shawl I ever made that that was the one that my friend like started me off on. I lost on a on a train in New York. Okay, City. I know. See, look at my memory. Yeah, I have, you're good. I, you're I good. do not have a CSF leak. <laughs> no, you are all <laughs> <Right> there. <now. laughs> you are all there. You're so good. You are very good <laughs> it's knitter. Just following a pattern. I don't know, but it's really fun. And you know, if anybody like. Yeah, I've been dealing with chronic health issues since my CSF leak and I have a lot of downtime and, 
it's just a nice thing to be able to do. And then sometimes I can post it on Facebook and people say nice things about it. So, well, see, or you go on a podcast and you say, and people give you nice things. Well, I used to knit, actually. I was a knitter for a while. And you say it's just following a pattern. And that, my friend, is downplaying the challenge. And I'm a musician. I should be really better at that kind of thing. But I would make scarves. I made my daughter a poncho. I tried to make a sweater. I think that's as good as I got. But I love knitting. I love the idea of doing something with your hands. By the way, it's a great tip for people who are trying to disconnect from their phone. Yes. It's like a nice thing to do if you're watching TV and you don't want a second screen. That's like right. the official term. Or listening to podcasts. You can knit while exactly. you And also, it's a yes. really good thing to do with your brain. One of the things, you know, that I wrote about in the book was like, I kind of did this neuro rehab by starting to practice piano again, like from the beginning, doing basic exercises all the way up to regular, you know, repertoire. And those kinds of like really concentrated, focused movements uh, that are repetitive and stuff, and yet still creative, are really, really good for rehabbing your brain, for making new connections and things like that. And knitting is another way to access that that kind of thing. You know, you're doing something over and over, but you're also making something. And you do have to pay attention because you might like slip a stitch yes. or something. So it really you engages do. your brain and your hands in a really positive way. And then you get like cool stuff out of it. I know. Really cool stuff. All right. So that's awesome. Um, my cool pick of the week is Soma. I don't know if you're familiar with that store. Oh. But um, I thought it was just a bra and underwear store. But it turns out they have clothes there. And I found my new favorite t-shirt. In fact, I'm looking at it right now because I'm hiding in my closet. And I have learned in my older adult life that I need to take care of my clothing. Yeah. <laughs> like I used to just toss everything on the floor. And now when I find something I really like, I take good care of it. So I'm in my closet looking at my favorite new t-shirt. So it's called the Essential Short Sleeve T-shirt. They have it in black and in white. And I don't know about you, but I always have a hard time finding T-shirts that a don't lose their shape after a couple washes, or like are super fitted. I don't know. I just kind of want like a good staple, and I'm willing to pay for it. And that's what this is. It's double lined. Oh, yeah, in the front and the back, so it's kind of. Th- like a little thicker and it holds its shape. It's boxy. It's not super fitted. Anyway, it's my new favorite thing. And I found it at the bra store. (laughs) (laughs) It's really comfy. It's super comfy. You can wear it alone and it looks nice. Like also that's the other thing with t-shirts. I feel like they're either too casual. This, you can definitely wear it alone with jeans and it would look cute or you could wear it under a blazer. So anyway, it's a great staple. We'll link all of this, all of your skin food and knitting (laughs) and this t-shirt up on our site. If you go to cool mom, Picks.com, you will learn more about it. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. Huge thanks to our engineer, John Bowen, our guest, Andy Buchanan, and Liz, we miss you. We can't wait for you to be back next week. We love hearing from you. There are a bunch of things you can do to help us find new listeners. We love new listeners. It's one of our favorite things. So here's what you can do. You can leave us a five-star review on iTunes. You can make sure to subscribe to our podcast. In fact, you can do it right now and download or save our episodes. And of course, tell your friends about Spawned. They would love to hear about Spawned. And then you can be the cool friend who told your friends about an awesome podcast. And don't forget, we launched our Spawned podcast community on Facebook. It's a private group where we will be talking all about our show topics, and well, anything else you want to talk about. So if you go to our podcast page on Cool Mom Picks, we'll have it linked up or just go right to Facebook, search for Spawned Podcast Community, and you'll find us. Thanks so much for listening to Spawned. This is Kristen. Have a great day. 